Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right. Good day, everyone, and we are live. Uh, welcome to another edition of Rogue Mornings. Uh, this is CJ, and once again, I uh, have the honor and the pleasure of having uh, London Paul, the Sirius Report, uh, joining us today. So very excited about that. So happy Friday to our listeners, our fans. B, I hope you're having a great vacation. I hope you're ready to get back to work on Monday. Uh, Paul, good morning. How are you, sir? Yes, good morning, CJ. I'm very well. And yourself? I'm, I'm doing great, Paul. You know, I'm, I'm excited. You know, I stayed awake late last night to get, you know, caught up on some work. Uh, you know, I looked through, uh, you know, the news and seeing everything that was going on. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to the weekend. How about, how about yourself? Yeah, yeah, likewise. I mean, so, well, not that anyone needs to be obviously busy doing some things this morning for my mom. But, uh, yeah, made good progress. So I'm looking forward to, to another sort of discussion about <laughs> – the literally daily events that are unfolding, which are enormous in quantity and getting ever more profound. I mean, sometimes odd things are maybe fairly insignificant, but we're seeing more and more developments on a daily basis, which are anything but insignificant. So, Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, you know, when I was looking through some of those topics, there was several in there that are just very interesting and just, Things for people to keep in mind and, you know, paying it, paying attention to, you know, things that are happening uh, globally, uh, geopolitically to keep in mind that, you know, even though the media has us so focused on the piddly little things, you know, time and time after again, it's very easy. If Even if you spend like an hour watching TV or half an hour, it's it's almost like you get this, you know, this uh, derangement because they, they everything is just so tense and, you know, this is happening. But. Yeah, it's, it's interesting times in, indeed, Paul. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, maybe maybe we could start with the US and China. <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, this whole sort of trade war, which effectively what it is, I mean, the fact that there was they even bothered the Chinese turn up suggests that they thought there might be some mileage in, in turning up. But the reality is... Uh, there wasn't a lot of optimism, I don't think, on either side of the equation. And the, and the problem is, without trying to apportion all the blame on the US, but maybe we need to uh, preface that by saying, look, this isn't about uh, tariffs in the sense that the US you know, should suffer you know, other nations putting tariffs on them. I agree there needs to be some sensible approach to how this is resolved. But the U.S. deciding just to go you know, hammer and tongs and impose tariffs on China, who, of course, have reciprocated. And then the U.S. puts more tariffs on China and China reciprocates. But it's got to the point where China can't really reciprocate in terms of trade. So they're going to do some other things that are probably going to be far more damaging to the U.S. economy. But one thing that I was told today, which is quite interesting, is there's an understanding now because of the tariffs that... You know, a lot of U.S. imports, you could, 
the average consumer is going to start to see price increases of 7, 8, 9, 10, and maybe even up to 15 and 20%. So in essence, you're seeing inflation uh, for, for the U.S. consumer in buying goods. Now, of course, the latest talks are broken down effectively with no, no resolution of anything. And, you know, they've made no progress. And I think the problem is the Chinese are saying, well, look, if we're, if we're going to make progress, then it has to be reciprocal. But the U.S. just wants China to do everything they want with. And unfortunately, the U.S. is not in, in that position at the moment where they're very good at negotiating because they were so used in the past of saying, well, this is what you're going to do. And nations used to sort of bow down to them and say, OK, you want me to jump how high? Well, of course, China's not going to do that. And they're going to say, well, I'm sorry, unless you're prepared to negotiate, then we're at an impasse. So what, of course, we'll now expect is a huge escalation, um, you know, of um, a trade war. Effectively, the U.S. may be putting another $200 billion worth of, of tariffs on, on Chinese imports, which, of course, China will respond. And I think what's kind of telling is that Chinese officials raised the possibility there'd be no further negotiations could happen until after November's midterm election. Why they seem to think after the midterms is relevant, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I don't want to go into speculation because we don't deal in speculation, but there may be just a, a, the rationale is, look, the midterms are coming up. I think Trump's got enough to deal with. Let's just park this for now. But I think, once again, the issue here, it's not Trump. It's it's Trump's advisors and how they're trying to play hardball. I mean, yes, at times Trump's made some ill-advised tweets, made ill-advised comments, but in in essence, he was nearly, as we said back in in the spring, prepared to reach a compromise with the Chinese, and then he kind of got hardballed into not doing that by his advisors, and of course, we've ended up with this trade war in the process. But at the end of the day, it's only going to cause price inflation in the U.S., which the average U.S. consumer can ill afford. And, of course, as they say, the lack of progress and this prospect of tariffs, you know, is just going to effectively just escalate out of control. And I think you'd expect a new round of tariffs to be implemented within a week or two at the most. And at the end of the day, it, there's going to come a crunch point where the Chinese will say, okay, well, we've run out of U.S. goods to, to put tariffs on. Okay, so how are we going to 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 start to, to implement additional measures? And it's going to all revolve around the dollar. Well, we know what the Chinese view of the dollar is anyway. But in essence as well, I think part of the thing is that there's a, in the Beltway, there's many who are terrified of the progress China's made with the Belt and Road Initiative, which is why they keep trying to rubbish it and claim it's just a really, well, they don't say U.S. or Germany, but it's like U.S. or Germany Mark II, which, of course, it isn't. But China keeps coming out and saying, well, they made a comment saying, you know, it's impossible for China to drop the Made in China 2025. Um, and, you know, they may say there's some license with regarding in intellectual property, but even then it's highly debatable whether they'll ever reach a compromise on that. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I think we can just expect this only to escalate further and there will be no resolution. But ultimately, China's already diversifying 
uh, it's in the market. So it's saying, okay, well, we won't trade with the U.S. Soybeans is a is a good example of that. And they will continue to do that. And ultimately, the U.S. is the one who's going to get get hit hardest as a result of that. And ultimately, of course, it will lead to further de-dollarization. Now, there are those who quite rightly will say, well, Trump's doing this solely because he has to take a wrecking ball to the cabal. And therefore, ergo, you have to take a wrecking ball to the, to the dollar. And that is true. So in one sense, what Trump's doing makes sense. I mean, but the problem is there's ways of doing things. And, and from my perspective, the way they're handling China is not an appropriate way of doing it. There is far better ways to say, well, okay, I know the dollar's got to die. You know the dollar's dying and it's the end. The Russians do and so does most of the world in the process. But okay, how are we going to, to deal with this matter? Because it's the age-old problem. You've got the midterms coming up. If the U.S. consumer starts to get hit by high inflation based on imports, then they're going to start saying, hang on, the economy is supposed to be strong. Why, why am I suffering with this price inflation? Why suddenly am I having to buy goods that cost 10, 15 or 5 percent or whatever higher? It's, it's the timing. It's ill-advised to do this prior to midterms. Now, there will be those who will say, well, ultimately it won't make any difference. Well, it might make a difference. It might create a tipping point in the U.S. economy, which could then cause a contagion effect that no one can manage. I mean, as much as you can control things, and let's face it, the cabal's controlled things for the last 10 years to preserve the illusion of the dollar, even when the dollar effectively collapsed in 2008. And they'll endeavor to do this. It doesn't mean there aren't a series of events that could conspire to create a financial event which could have serious damaging consequences. And I think it's a gamble that Trump doesn't need to, to, to play. But the problem is, if he backs off now and says to China, okay, well, enough of this, then he'll appear weak in the eyes of, of the American people. He'll say, well, hang on, you were sticking it to the Chinese with regards to, to tariffs on, on imports. And uh, and now you're telling me, well, actually, we're not doing this anymore. So he's he's caught between a rock and a hard place, effectively, and he has to follow this through now. I think maybe what will be more telling is, without sounding like a broken record, is what happens after the midterms and how then they approach the whole thing with China. And maybe we'll see something different transpire. But the risk is that the U.S. economy is fragile enough. It doesn't need a trade war with with China and all the rhetoric in the media about China's economy, I mean, is collapsing and China can't manage the Belt and Road Initiative and China can't handle uh, this trade war is absolute nonsense. We've said this before. China has enormous uh, Forex reserves. It's probably 13, 15, 16, 18 trillion dollars. They've paid for all the Belt and Road Initiative with cash not debt. China doesn't have a debt problem. People imagine they have a debt problem, but the debt is, in, is uh, internalized, which effectively means it's a bit like, well, this part of the government owes this part of the government money. So effectively, it's an irrelevance. They don't have external debt problems. But the West likes to continue to say, and they have done for more years than I care to remember, the Chinese economy is going to collapse. It's unsustainable. 
what they fail to realize is the Chinese economy has been rotating to be more consumption based. And they've still been able to achieve economic growth of six and a half to seven percent. I mean, can you imagine the West and nations trying to rotate their, the economy of a nation of well over a billion people? and actually succeed in doing it. They just would be incapable of doing it. They can't manage the economy at the best of times, never mind a serious rotation in terms of the economy to be more consumption-based as people become higher wage earners and therefore in the process have less, you know, less emphasis on manufacturing, although China's manufacturing hasn't disappeared. And intelligently, with the Belt Road Initiative, they've invested so they have a stake in the suppliers who provide the Chinese, to the Chinese market, so they win that way, as well as winning from an export uh, base, something else largely the West has failed to, to realise. But in summary, it doesn't really surprise me that there was absolutely no progress made, uh, because I think the US is just adamant, China's got to buckle and, and cave in and, and give in, and that's the only way that, that's the only way we're going to make progress. Well, if anyone imagines Beijing is going to do that, then they're very sadly mistaken. Is there any chance of compromises? Well, never say never. I mean, but at the moment, it seems highly unlikely. And, uh, and at some point, it could get very ugly for the US, depending on how China responds to, um, to the fact that, you know, basically they've run out of uh, putting tariffs on, on imports. Yeah, correct, Paul. I, I completely agree, and that's part of the reasons why I keep talking, you know, the topics in regards to, you know, the economy and what's happening, because I truly believe, for the most part, people, you know, do vote their wallets. I think in, in the, you know, the, the, the Corn Belt of America, the, the, uh, the middle uh, income families, they, you know, that's so important to them. And, and unfortunately, these decisions that are being made in Washington, D.C. Are, are made for the most part by people who are, you know, shielded by these inflations. You know, they have, you know, just massive amounts of wealth that they don't care. They don't pay attention to how this is, you know, impacting. Do you, do you think a millionaire is going to care if, you know, their milk or their, their grocery bill? They probably wouldn't even notice if their grocery bill went up by, you know, five or six percent. But when we're seeing a massive amount of consumer debt that just continues to grow knowing that you know that it appears that people are still struggling you know to keep up with their their, their bills it's it's got to be very harmful so then how does uh trump come midterms champion you know the tax cuts and give money back when people are realizing well yeah but we're inflation is is you know creeping up consistently and any of that tax credit uh was 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 given back to ra ra raising consumer prices i mean that's just um that's just the, the potential for it and it's again it's just something to keep you know keep an eye on in regards to these these policies uh paul yeah and i and i think the problem is it's one thing with the u.s not being able to reach agreement with with china and saying well okay we can't reach an agreement no one's prepared to compromise whatever, you know, each of their standpoint is. But then in the next breath, you've got U.S. officials are meeting in Washington today 
with delegates from the EU and Japan to discuss efforts to confront China at the World Trade Organization <laughs> over its industrial <laughs> subsidies and the conduct it says of its state-owned enterprises. I mean, talk about throwing petrol on the fire. I mean, and this is the problem. I think I think what's what's happened in the Beltway is they just simply can't accept that the, the status quo for decades is gone. Nations are no longer going to be bullied by the US into line. And it's one thing China do, but countless nations now are standing up to them and saying, I'm sorry, we've had enough of this. And you know what? It, it, as we said before, it surprised me they didn't realize all you had to do was say, okay, we're not going to trade in dollars. And actually, as soon as you break free from the US to Germany via, via, dollar, via the dollar, your economy immediately improves. And it's, it's staggering it took them so many years to realize this. Maybe a lot of it was fear and intimidation. And of course, there is a history of nations that didn't behave themselves, subsequently had regime change. I mean, Gaddafi is a classic one. People complained about, you know, well, Gaddafi was this horrible, evil dictator. Well, go and talk to Libyans and the, the, the quality of life a lot of them had. You know where they'd get tax breaks and uh, and free healthcare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's beside the point. The point is, I always said to people, well, if he was so such an evil dictator, why did they allow him to be in power for decades before he, they removed him? Well, we know why they removed him because he challenged the dollar. It's the same with Saddam Hussein, because he challenged the dollar and didn't want to trade oil in in dollars anymore, and said he wanted it in euros. Well, I'm sorry, you've you've overstepped the line. So there was a precedent in the past to, for nations to back off from that in that regard. But that's the biggest clue anybody needs, just how much the world's changed when nations are now standing up because they aren't fearful anymore of, of, of U.S. aggression. And, of course, that is partly to do with the China's economic prowess and also, of course, Russia's military prowess. That's a big change. And I come back to the point we said, Putin's speech to Russian lawmakers on the 1st of March was probably one of the most telling things that's happened, not just this year, but for many years, because that changed the whole com, uh, uh, you know, com, uh, comp, uh, sorry, changed the whole emphasis. Of, I'm rubbing off on you, Paul. I'm rubbing off on you. <laughs> changes, the, changes the whole um, emphasis of, of how the world moves forward. And that's why since that point in time, we're talking, well, nearly six months ago, nation after nation suddenly adopting a very different attitude towards the U.S. in terms of the dollar and in terms of U.S. aggression. And they're also, you know, we've seen nations where there has definitely been attempts to have regime change and it's failed and it fails repeatedly. Well, that would never have been the case in the past. So it is highly indicative of these huge changes that have uh, have happened post 1st of March of this year, when as soon as the US actually had to acknowledge, although still they didn't really a lot of them acknowledge, but then that, that it was the case, but there was huge fear suddenly within the Pentagon and the CIA, hang on, you know, we've been duped. The Russia's technologically and militarily is so far ahead of us. And we're not, we're not talking five, 10 years. They're probably, and, and this is not an exaggeration, they're probably 50 to 75 years ahead of the U.S. military. Now, think about the advancements we've made in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Well, if you extrapolate that, because it's never linear, it's always exponential, 
the growth in technology. Imagine what that actually means in real terms for them to be now 70, up to maybe 70 years ahead. I mean, they are, I mean, the US has no answer to them militarily anymore, which is why they can't then go and threaten nations. I mean, not that they were ever really realistically ever going to threaten Iran. But you saw how, how they've how they've conducted themselves in Syria, how you know there was a lot of bluster about war happening in North Korea, and I said it will never happen because militarily Russia is, is light years ahead, and that is that threat means the US will not even consider a war in, in North Korea. And at the time people were saying, No, that's not gonna happen. And of course, it transpired that that was exactly what did happen because the US were told, look, if you're going to, if you seriously attempt to launch any preemptive strike on North Korea, we will sink your entire fleet in the South China Sea. And that's just for starters. So think twice about um, considering any military action preemptive in a preemptive sense. I mean, if North Korea had stupidly and foolishly fired missiles, at Japan or South Korea, not that I'm suggesting they would, but then the North Koreans were told you're on your own and you can take the consequences. So they they were even handed on the matter. They weren't. It wasn't all just taking North Korea's uh, stance on the matter. Although in reality, North Korea was never going to do anything of the sort. It was just brinkmanship to give them the ammunition to be able to get the US in it to, to, to the negotiating table in inverted commas, much like exactly what uh, Iran did by, in the illusionary sense, posing a nuclear threat. It's why Obama said, okay, we're going to have to get them to the table because we can't, you know, we have to negotiate with them. Anyone who has the potential for a nuclear threat has to be negotiated with, and North Korea learned that from from the Iranians. And that's why they were able to make the progress they did by effectively bluffing Washington into believing that they posed a threat. Hence all these missile tests they were just designed to to get the trump administration to the table because of the unknown fear well maybe they do possess the capability but the reality is they don't possess the capability to launch any nuclear attack on the us and for that matter they're not stupid enough to even consider doing that yeah absolutely absolutely yeah i mean and and to assess things internally i think you know russia almost kind of you know, provided, you know, the blueprint to say, hey, you know, you can operate outside the dollar. I mean, how many how many years have we had sanctions on on Russia? Uh, how many times are we learning that there's new proposed sanctions coming on on Russia, Paul? And 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 each time Russia has a, a solution and is in a way kind of uh, providing a blueprint to say, hey, you know, the, the world is changing and um you know, unless the U.S. starts looking at things a little bit differently, uh, they they will be isolated, and that's in a little bit of uh, you know of what we're seeing now. Yeah, and that's the thing. I I think the the big question with regards to the U.S. is okay. We are in this kind of holding position to a large extent, where Trump has a very different vision for the U.S. than than most of his administration. I mean, that that's a statement of fact. The question is, at what point does is does is the or is the the tipping point where Trump is able to say, okay, I have this vision, and the Beltway has this vision, or the deep state, the cabal, whatever you want to call them. At what point am I able to to 
enforce my vision and therefore change the entire dynamic? And and that's the big question now. <clears throat> Arguably, it comes back to, well, something's probably likely to varying degrees to happen after the midterms. Something actually will park this, but it's worth, I watched that Fox interview. So let's park that for a second, but we'll come back to it in a minute because there was something interesting that came out of that. Now, so with regards to, to US policy, it's always the question that, you know, I think Putin said it best when, you know, we met Trump in Helsinki, we had a very useful meeting, then he goes back and he calls it the establishment in the US, meaning the deep state cabal, um, whatever you want to call it. it. You know, they then just rule the roost and tell Trump what to do, and that's effectively what he keeps reiterating and says many times, and of course... The Russians and the Chinese know this. So if Trump is at the second Trump's able to do something which counteracts that in a meaningful way, then, you know, China and Russia will be supportive. But at the moment, the position is, well, nothing's changed. We, we're just going to have to maintain the position we're doing. It's not a game. It's not to deceive the cabal. It's saying we work on the basis of how we're confronted with things. And if you're going to challenge us economically, we have to respond accordingly. But uh, with regards to the Fox interview, I think what was quite interesting, he was kind of, they were kind of programming, you know, will changes happen after midterm? He's talking about the Justice Department, et cetera. And he, he didn't exactly answer it, but kind of inferred that, yes, that's, a, you know, that's a, a distinct possibility. So I think, therefore, that is the basis on which we can say, well, we anticipate post, you know, the, the, uh, midterms provided everything goes according to plan we're then likely to see some initiatives implemented and the kind of things that we've spoken about since trump was elected that at some point he's going to have to grapple with these problems and deal with them now the question therefore you would ask is what is going to significantly change after the midterms that's the thing i mean okay so if he wins by landslide the argument is he has more of a mandate to do things, but he's still going to have to, you know, battle with problems in the Department of Justice, in the FBI, in the CIA, and the list goes on and on, as, as everybody knows. So then the question is, what's going to fundamentally change to allow him to do that? Well, you know, we can speculate for, for the next six hours about what those possibilities may be, but the inference is that something is expected to change post the midterm. So... We look forward to seeing what those developments are. But for now, you know, the world will just treat the U.S. how it has to treat it. Because if, you know, the, the neocons are controlling U.S. foreign policy, then they're going to respond to the neocons. It doesn't matter really what Trump says or, or they know Trump means, because what Trump is proposing isn't happening. And it comes back to the point, what happens in two years if he doesn't get reelected as president? OK, if he does. What happens in by 2024? And that's the way the Chinese and the Russians think. They're not interested in today. They're going, okay, well, Trump might be able to do things for the next four, five, six years. But after that, what happens? Are we going to get Jeb Bush in or something? I mean, I'm being, you know, ridiculous, but I'm using the analogy that, that you get some complete puppet elected post-2024. Now, by all means possible, I think that's hugely unlikely. But they can only deal with what they see at the time. So therefore, you know, the position may be in six months' time. You may be in a totally different world. And then we'll look back and say, okay, there were some fundamental changes. And then 
China and Russia will act accordingly. But for now, that they will not do that, and rightly so, because you know, for all what Trump has said, he has to deliver on those things. And yes, he has delivered to a certain extent. But having said that, you know, there are fundamentally huge problems that still exist that aren't being dealt with. And you know, we don't need to labour on those too much. But the obvious ones, like we've said, I mean. When is the Clinton Foundation going to be uh, investigated? When are they going to reopen an investigation into the whole Clinton email server debacle? I mean, there you go, Jeff Sessions. I mean, there's a lot of people who believe Sessions is, you know, on the good side of the fence, and and then there's people who don't believe it. Well, my view on it is quite simple. At some point, Sessions is going to have to deliver, and time's running out for him to deliver. I don't think if he doesn't start to deliver, something's by the midterms, post-midterms, he's going to be out. I think you'll, I think Trump will fire him and get rid of him. So he's, a, he's got a finite window to do things. And if he does things all well and good, fantastic, because that benefits the U.S. people and that, you know, should be commended. But if he doesn't, there comes a point when you have to say, well, for whatever reason, he's ineffectual. And therefore, I think Trump will remove him if there's no sign of him dealing with the myriad of fundamental problems that at the moment, for whatever reason, and we can argue why he's not doing it, he's just failing to address huge problems that, you know, that really, for me, an attorney general should be dealing with. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. Um, great assessment, Paul. And, you know, you said something to, to really consider and think about is that how much more politically does get gained, you know, when you take a look at, you know, the, the Republicans having the the Oval Office, controlling the House, you know, controlling the Senate. This, I think, people will eventually will see this, and this is another great example of where I sound like a broken record saying this, but I've, I, I don't believe anything politically is going to be, you know, resolved through the United States federal government. The government is the problem, you know, in itself, and and here's a perfect example where. You know, Rand Paul had to fire back at his own constituents in the Republican Party for blocking his amendment to defund Planned Parenthood. So, so if we're so if we're all excited about all these uh, pedo arrests and everything, which I truly am, uh, I, I'm glad that they're they're arresting all these people and these are things. You know, don't you think we should also take the step and also protect the sanctity of of life as well? And so now here you have the Republicans saying that. We don't need to muddy the water of a, of a legislation by blocking funding of 400, $400 million in taxpayer money, uh, which results the ending of 320,000 lives each year. Uh, where where in, the, in the world is the uh, conservative party, the people that, that supported you know, life? Where is that? And, and this is a perfect example where I think that the danger lies, where people see you know, Trump as a figurehead, Trump as a person, but understands that, you know, the the, the swamp and how massive it is. Um, I, I don't think I would ever advocate for something like what Putin or Xi Jinping has done, where they have the ability to be forever president. I don't I don't think I would ever support or sign off on that. I just just as something I don't you know, I think they, they could run. But, you know, just giving themselves a mandate, uh, it, it really leaves me to question what other what is going to be accomplished regardless of, of of the midterms when you have a republican party who continues to do things like this where they know that that was part of the party platform now 
again, for those, those women, I completely, uh, I completely get what, um, what Planned Parenthood in terms of some of the services they provide in under, uh, funded areas of the, of the country for some of women's health, you know, issues. But to me, that becomes a state issue and allowing a state to decide if they want to do that. Not, not the federal government doling out these, these millions of dollars for, for, uh, for paid abortions, Paul. Well, I think the question is, I mean, the subject itself is, you know, I think it, it's a very tough one to discuss that. I mean, you know, from whatever side of the equation you're on, I mean, people talk about things. I mean, you know, I personally don't get involved in these deliberations because you know, it's not really my position to comment on, on that. But what I would say is, I mean, to receive $400 million of taxpayers' money, I think the question needs to be to, to justify that kind of expenditure and why is that much money put in in the first place i think i know but it is true you know the whatever people's perspective is i think what this is highlighting is is i think the one thing trump's done intelligently is destroyed partisan politics i mean the democrats are in tatters essentially and but the thing is he's highlighting but not in this case directly but indirectly we're seeing how fractured the republicans are as a party when there's the relative few who support Trump and then there's the huge majority who'd rather who'd like quite like to see him probably impeached, but realize the consequences of that could mean or would be disastrous for the Republican Party. So therefore they'll back off. But I think what that this highlights is that um the that party politics in the US is deeply fractured. Now that's a good thing because that partisan politics has been there to deceive and uh, people, as we know, without labouring that point too much. But uh, but the one thing is that uh, he said, I mean, Rand Paul said claims that, you know, obviously the, the Republican leadership is blocking the amendment because they favoured bloated government spending more than they care about planned parenthood. Well, that's an, an observation and, and it's a, a valid point. And he said he criticised the appropriations bill that exceeds spending caps by $100 billion. You know, and he's saying big spending Republicans fear that blocking funding from Planned Parenthood would derail their plans to greatly expand the welfare warfare state. Well, that is a whole argument that needs probably discussing for about 10 hours in itself because he raises a number of huge points in that regard. And, um, you know, and then, of course, you've got Republicans saying, well, this amendment could be a spoiler and you know, the bill will go for a vote without poison pills that may trigger this filibuster from Democrats. And this is the problem. I think there are a number of things uh, in terms of government that should be completely apolitical. It, you know, there shouldn't be political parties trying to railroad opinions on things. I think some things it should just be if, you know, if legislation has to be passed, it's a free vote. People can vote with their conscience how they want to do things and and i think there needs to be more of that in in degrees of government rather than trying to to railroad certain policy through or prevent certain policy coming through but i appreciate it's a very tough subject and uh, in of itself and, and and therefore you know from my perspective it's very difficult and i'm not dodging the question because but, you know, from my perspective, it's very difficult to, to ascertain what Planned Parenthood does, what 
what what are the benefits and what aren't the benefits what are the things it could do better and yeah you know in in very you know to, sort of rough terms he makes the point about all the endings of lives of babies each year but you know what <clears throat> there's an aspect i don't really want to get to to get into a great deal of detail about because i'm not going to make comments about things that i personally would would find very very difficult to to discuss because i'm not you know anyway let's just park it at that i think i you know it's, it is it's a very tough subject and there's the people have a myriad of views on that. And, oh, absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, it's, and it's a, more of a social issue, and and you know, and and again, being a, a libertarian and the whole thought around it. But you're right; I think it ties more to specifically to the massive amount of, of funding and government government spending and, and big government making these. Uh, these and it's polit yeah, and effectively, it's politicizing something that you know shouldn't be politicized. Really, I think you know that that that's the big problem and um and and i think you know in a sense that the broader sense is where where paul makes you know Rand paul makes those statements that you know the big spending republicans fear that blocking funding from planned parenthood would derail their plans to greatly expand the welfare warfare state well the, that's a far bigger question that needs addressing and we come back to that point where of making people highly dependent on the state. I mean, certainly it's happened in the UK, it's happened across Europe, and it's happened in the US increasingly. And that is a far bigger problem that needs addressing. Absolutely. And this this kind of ties into it uh, a little bit, Paul, and that's the life expectancy declines seen in the US and other high-income uh, countries. And, uh, you know, I'm interested to hear your perspective. I know I have mine just in part because I think that this ties directly into not only the uh, political awakening that's happening uh, around the globe, but I think here in the U.S., a massive awakening as well in regards to, you know, uh, you know this, you know, our food supply, uh, the uh, the dangers of, of of vaccines. You know, we pride ourselves in America that we spend more on any other uh, country in terms of healthcare. But yet the life expectancy is is decreasing, Paul. <laughs> so, so I don't think, and I don't think there's been really any big major innovation in several years in regards to, you know, how we treat certain disease state managements, Paul. Yeah, I think you know this is a massive um, subject because, you know, let let's look at this. Look, you know. It, it really doesn't ultimately come as any surprise that, you know, we're having this tipping point in life expectancy. I mean, we talked about, and, and, and there's an article highlights the opioid epidemic, which certainly is an aspect of it. I mean, they tried to go all this severe flu season on older adults and the sort of, you know, that, that's just, you know, a smokescreen from the major problems. I think undoubtedly a lot of the problems is dietary related. It's GMO food. It's preservatives that uh, you know uh, uh, that are put in, and people eat a lot of processed food, which is which is a huge problem, because a lot of you know healthy foods are just unaffordable. We're back to this the, the whole economic problem of people just trying to survive, you know, on on very poor standards of living. I think health, yeah, health issues are certainly a problem. Vaccines, we know, is is a hugely contentious subject area, and I've always had this viewpoint of um, 
with pharmaceutical companies that, you know, pharmaceutical companies would go bust if people were healthy. So they have to keep people well enough so they need repeated doses of medication, but not too well enough so they don't need them anymore. And you could say that's quite cynical, but, you know, in reality, that's exactly how the industry works. And there are a load of better alternatives for people to be treated. That, but big pharma wants to make huge profits. And in the process, I think the health service doesn't doesn't serve the the, the best interest by any stretch of the imagination of, of the average person. And, of course, what's undoubtedly happened in the last 10 years, there's been a decline in people's earnings. They, you know, <clears throat> despite all the idea that you know infl- inflation is very low, it's very it's been you know increasing, and people are finding it harder to make ends meet, which is why we have even more spiraling in in debt terms. But what this does, it affects people's health, and and also the other thing is, is the stress levels people have in their lives. That you know, stress is one of the biggest killers of people. It, it's a known fact, and and it's been there's numerous scientific studies that proves that you know the case, and and of course they highlight things like widespread or s- sustained declines in life expectancy does signal problems in a nation's social and economic condition, and that's absolutely true, and and that's why it's another joke to say just how strong the U.S. economy is, when it's clear you know that there's been a decline in life expectancy over the last three years. I mean. So it's a contributory factor of economic, social problems, people's health and well-being as a result of how the medical profession operates, how pharmaceuticals operate, how GMO food. I mean, what are the long term consequences of eating processed food and all the things we've we've discussed? But clearly it's starting to have an impact. And for me, quite worryingly, is how quickly this has started to have an impact. Now, of course, they're going to always use the thing, well, people need to have, you know, it's all people dying of, of flu and, you know, it's really virulent flu strains and pneumonia and all those kind of things. But but the other thing that also needs to be addressed is the environmental impact because most certainly there is increasing numbers of people who are developing Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's uh, never mind cardiovascular disease and other sort of respiratory disease, which is which is a huge problem. Now, you can attribute that part of that is people were living longer and therefore more likely to develop these things. But certainly there needs to be a look into the environmental pollution uh, and and the effects that's having on people's health. And you know, so there are a myriad of issues that need to be addressed. And yes, the opioid addiction is a big problem because you know that's having an effect on deaths on those in their, as they say, 20s and 30s, and that's very much the case. And that also is going to have an impact on the overall statistics. And then you've got to factor in is people become not just a opioid addiction, there's alcohol addiction, there's gambling addiction, all the addictions people are and how that affects the health and well-being of the individual, their families, and, you know, and in the process. And how is that skewing these statistics as well? So... Really, all it's showing us is the rapid decline in the social and economic well-being of people in what are supposedly, you know, first world nations. And I'm not sure of the statistics for the UK off the top of my head, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's if it's starting to um, reflect what we see in, in the US and, and also probably 
is is representative of things that are happening in Europe. So, you know, <clears throat> who knows what other so-called first world nation and, and what the situation is. But clearly, we're reaching a tipping point where there's a lot of matters that are going to have to be addressed now. Arguably, of course, in a post-cabal world, you're going to see the end of, of certain of these practices that are arguably highly contentious. I mean, big pharma will not be uh, existing the way it does now. I think that's absolute certainty. So that's going to have a serious uh, impact, hopefully in a positive sense on life expectancy and people's quality of life, but it's not going to happen instantaneously. You've also got the issue of, of, of how we produce food and grow food. And, and there's an argument that, you know, it's like the UK, there is so much um, agricultural land that could be, you know, food produce could be grown and make the, the whole food uh, chain that much cheaper and therefore people could eat quality food for a fraction of the price. So, and I'm, you know, I'm sure look at the size of the US. I mean, with modern agricultural techniques, I mean, the Netherlands is a great example. It's a small nation. There's a lot of people squashed in, but they have an incredible agri, agri sort of industry and in how they produce and grow food. It's, it's absolutely staggering, uh, the achievements they've made. I mean, they're probably almost world leaders in that regard. So anything's possible. It's perfectly feasible. But a lot of these things aren't going to come about until you see the end of, of the cabal because they control the corporations. They control big pharma. They control the big food chain. You know, so they have a vested interest to do what suits them. And all it is is profit. And ultimately, you know, they're not interested in the health and well-being of, of the average person, be it in the US, the UK or anywhere else. But, yeah, I think these kind of articles are hugely interesting. And they're highly indicative of the real social and economic problems that we have in Western nations, despite all this illusionary nonsense about how strong uh, the economies are and how, how, you know, there's nothing wrong with GMO food. And, you know, we shouldn't do any research into vaccines or environmental concerns as to why we've suddenly seen a spike in, for example, as we said, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, very, very well said. Yeah, it's interesting to see the, you know, with the different government agencies, whether it's the the FDA, uh, the Environmental Environmental Protection Agency, all these organizations are set up, and then you see where there's legislation that is attempted to be passed. For example, simple things like requiring labeling of GMO foods, and then we watch our legislatures shoot that down uh, because of of special interest in. And lobbying and, and yes, Paul, I completely I, I hope that at some point when there's this massive purge that's going to occur, uh, that someday humanity can wake up because you know, we're seeing, I mean, some of the most recent statistics, there was an MIT doctor that came out that said in I think in in like less than ne- the next twenty-five years, they estimate that one in two boys will be on the uh, autism spectrum. And that it just just you know, to, to it just really infuriates me. Uh, that we have, and there was a report last week that was in our deck, but I don't think we covered it. That like one in five Americans has a, lives with a disability, and you know, it, so in a way, it's really you know all the the things that they have in place, whether it's the food supply, the water supply, the the vaccines that they specifically have a an agenda, and that is to uh, control humanity. And this obvious to me is a sign that the the globalists, the people who 
look at life as the number one threat to uh, the environment, the likes of Microsoft, Bill Gates, you know, who's openly advocated that if we can reduce the population by certain numbers through getting creative vaccines, uh, that we can accomplish this. So, yeah, so humanity has to wake up to understand these things. And um, I, I sure hope that once this transition occurs is that we can we can awake to that and stop, uh, you know, I, every other day, it seems like there's a report of a, of a holistic doctor that, you know, that's, uh, that's you know, somehow they drowned in a foot of water, uh, you know, that we don't, we find that the FDA is not going, going after a vitamin supplement because it has great health benefits. So they want to get it banned, you know, all these things that they, the controllers want in place. And yeah, this article is kind of like, almost like how they, they tie it directly to, the, the opioid uh, epidemic, which is is a manufactured epidemic, you know, right? It was yeah, it was absolutely, yeah, manufactured. So I I don't see how they call it epidemic, but uh, and then also with the 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 seasonal flu season, it's almost kind of joke because it completely misses the bigger scope of of how corporate and corporations and the government have you know created this, where we know our life expectancy does decline. And the next move is, is that, okay, well, why are we spending so much money, you know, on the healthcare systems? And it, and it really ties back to economics as well. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it could be a, probably a huge show <laughs> with several people to discuss it. <laughs> well, well, I think the thing is we talk about those sort of things that people can readily identify with. And we covered off the whole, you know, disgusting, um, events in in was it pennsylvania with the catholic church and and we said that's one example of how you can galvanize people and make them go hang on enough's enough and if you if you sort of you know get a debate going where people start to realize it's not just the catholic church and it's in it's every walk of life and it's absolutely endemic in 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 western societies and beyond that for that matter and explain that's the way you sort of get a, a, an audience of people who may otherwise think everything's a conspiracy theory and they believe it. Now, when you talk about life expectancy, if you can provide the scientific factual basis for why things are happening and raise the debate and you know, get the people out there, because there are some great people who talk about these things and talk about the realities of what is what's unfolding and why it's unfolding and get that into the mainstream consciousness. It's another way of galvanizing people in a way that you can't really call it a conspiracy theory. Um, and, and, and these are the important sort of win-win things that you know, we need to see achieved to try and get more and more people on side to understand the reality of what's happening. Because you know, as much as we talk about things that are happening geopolitically and financially, uh, there are huge social implications for things that often we don't discuss. So it's good, you know, that we, we you know, with me, I mean, you and, and V discuss it, but, you know, typically I don't talk about these things. And, and it's good that we devote more time and, and talk about these aspects of things because they're very important that, you know, you know if, if one person starts to, to, to grasp this and says, okay, well, what have they said? What have they discussed? it's just another way of you know planting some more acorns and growing some oak trees and and this is the important thing you have to pick your battles with how you you, you convince people i mean i've talked to people in the past to understand the financial markets so there was a way of actually being able to approach that with that but you have to pick and choose what you can discuss with people but these sort of subjects are very important but it's important that people don't get 
bogged down in well it's all just an opioid epidemic oh it's just you know severe flu and all these uh, you know elderly people have died as a result of it and get smoke screened away from you know, opioid addiction and uh, and is is a major problem as we've discussed but there are a myriad of other factors that need to be brought into the mainstream consciousness but you're absolutely right how many holistic doctors have mysterious accidents it's 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 quite staggering how often this happens and this is a big huge problem but Fortunately, there's some very brave people out there who work, you know, work in the medical profession who are trying to change views and, and change people's understanding. And, and you raise the point of autism, and that's a hugely important subject and that is largely swept under the carpet. But that is increasingly also becoming a problem, you know, significant problem that is in far greater you know, depth and than it has than it ever has been. So the question is, what's causing this? And actually, recently, Lisa spent some time and we, you know, lo looking at some studies that as a US doctor, I can't remember her name. And she's been going to conferences and talking about things like this, and and she opens your eyes up to a whole you know world of different reasons as to why these things happen, because everyone automatically jumps on the whole issue of vaccines. And I'm not dismissing that, by the way, quite the contrary, but it, that's one of a myriad of factors as to why these problems are developing. Absolutely. And, you know, so, you know, it's great that we sort of touch on these things. And, you know, sometimes I think people think are quite surprised when I do discuss these things. But, you know, there's a lot of things I never, we don't actually get around to discussing. And it's not because I don't understand them or I don't believe them. It's just that, you know, there's, there's only so much time we can devote to, to an understanding of things on a certain level, but these things very much do figure. I want you know, as much as anyone else to see massive changes happening. And I've said this before, big pharma is going to have a wrecking ball taken to it. And that eventually, of course, that will have huge positive repercussions for all humanity, but particularly those in the West. I can give you an example of someone I know who splits their time between between being in the UK and in Russia. And whenever they live in the UK, they have huge issues with digestive problems um, and all, all manner of issues related to that because of the food they eat. As soon as they go to Russia, it stops immediately and they're, they're perfectly fine. They come back here, they have these problems. And of course, that <laughs> raised their interest. And as a consequence of that, they started to look into it. They got a greater understanding. They've told a whole bunch of people. And these, you know, sometimes the, you know, unfortunately for him, the, the, the suffering he went through was awful. But the byproduct of that is he learned and understood, okay, there must be something fundamentally different in terms of how food's produced. And of course, we know absolutely that's the case. So, so yeah, I think, you know, at times it maybe we should devote some more time to this and broaden the, the discussion and get some more people involved and, and choose some ideas and, and an understanding because I think as much as we think we know about this, there's there's a whole world of, of people out there doing a lot of research and very good research that Absolutely. actually will give us a very different perspective, even from our understanding. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's huge even for just, you know, like even just, a, you know, an educational point as well. Uh, Paul, let's, let's close with this because I think it's, it's very important to, you know, remember, you know, where we were, you know, a week ago, we're still witnessing a little bit of it with the shutting down of, of uh, alternate news, the shutting down of, 
uh, voices on YouTube, Twitter. And, and I feel like we're kind of like at the epicenter. There's a lot, so many different parts going on right now. And, you know, things are escalating. We're kind of waiting for a moment, something to happen, some type of flare up. You know, John Bolton again uh, yesterday threatened Syria again, stating, hey, you know, don't use chemical weapons. Oh, almost telegraphing something. But now we're getting record or news that Russia has actually recorded unidentified helicopters delivering weapons to Taliban, ISIS, and Afghanistan as well. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I can say without plugging our podcasts too much, but I've <laughs> I've talked about this with with our, my subscribers on and off for a long period of time about huge amounts of evidence that have existed with regards to similar events in Syria. I mean, there's, there is the question that you get arms shipments into countries and they may be intended for the right people and then they fall into the wrong hands. I mean, there is a legitimate argument that says that, but there's certainly equally a huge amount of evidence to suggest that the US coalition forces and the Israelis, for that matter, have been directly or indirectly supplying arms to, apart from the so-called rebels, but in the end, Daesh operatives were getting it, these weapons as well. Now, I covered this off some time ago that Russia was, was seeing some very strange developments happening with regards to um, uh, unidentified helicopters providing arms to various groups inside Afghanistan. So this comes as absolutely no shock that, and when Russia says we've recorded flights of, you know, these mysterious helicopters supplying weapons to units of the Taliban, and ironically, of course, Daesh or the Islamic states, so they're actually providing arms to both sides. I mean, bear in mind that the Taliban and the Islamic state are fighting each other in Afghanistan. So they're just perpetuating this war, this ongoing war. And when Russia says this, they'll have huge amounts of, of intelligence. I mean, for me, I can't remember how many months ago I commented on this. So this is hardly new news. It's in fact, it's pretty old. And again, it's Russia putting out old news and, People think it's new news and they'll have accumulated vast amounts of intelligence. And as they said, we'd like to once again point to the flights of unidentified helicopters in northern Afghanistan, which, as they say, deliver weapons and ammunition to local, well, they call it ISIL, but you know, Daesh groups, whatever you want to call it, and the Taliban members cooperating with the group in particular. I mean, this is a classic problem where they just want to keep the war going on and on and on and on and on because the military-industrial complex benefits by making huge amounts of profit from supplying arms. And also they have a vested interest to keep these regions destabilized. It's also because there's a need to keep opium exports uh, from Afghanistan continuing. And also because... If you, look at, if you look at the reality, we've had Daesh but destroyed in Syria. There's not, you know, in, in reality, the, the Syrian war's not quite ended, but to all intents and purposes, we're kind of at the point, it's sort of early 1945 in World War II, to use uh, an analogy. So a lot of these people have then moved off because they, they kind of left Syria. They all ended up going uh, to Afghanistan. I mean, there's a huge supply line that goes between Afghanistan and Syria in terms of Daesh operatives. That, that's proven as well to be the case. So 
So you'll see them shuttling backwards and forwards, but they're now shuttling them into Afghanistan. And it's just keeps the war going and gives a justification for the US to have a military presence there. And unfortunately, the Russians are, uh, and whilst we're saying unidentified, the, the Russians know exactly who's behind it. They know exactly who's responsible. It is US coalition forces. And again, it's just another example of US and, and, and European and coalition forces partners, uh, foreign policy that's just reprehensible. And it needs to stop. And, and of course, while you've got the neocons running amok inside the Trump administration, which they are, then, of course, they, they, this is just going to carry on. And, and unfortunately, it just propagates more war. It causes more suffering for, for the Afghan people. I mean, they've had 17 years of this. How much longer does this have to go on? But, but undoubtedly, as well as providing weapons and ammunition, the Russians have the intelligence that shows, you know, these operatives moving from Syria into Afghanistan and vice versa. So it is, it is a massive problem. Um, and you have to, there has to come a point where it's going to have to end and, and, and it will end at some point. But for now, unfortunately it's going to carry on because you know, Trump really doesn't have control over foreign policy. I mean, Trump would, like to get out of Afghanistan. He'd like to get out of Syria. He wants the end of the, the nonsense in Ukraine and the list goes on and on and on. But at the moment, he's not capable of actually doing that because there are bigger uh, interests at play inside, obviously, um, Afghanistan and Syria and other nations, Ukraine, for example. But yeah, this is, this is old news and it will continue for the time being. It's very frustrating, but you know, what, what, what can the Russians do except publicly say you know, mysterious aircraft in a way they're just telling the, the the u.s coalition well we know exactly who's responsible by the way we have all the intelligence and and they're using it as leverage because the one thing the russians do very intelligently they have a lot of intelligence and it's been used to great effect to leverage some big changes that aren't obvious necessarily uh, to it to anybody but they've made a huge difference in in not playing your hand. Everyone says, play your hand. It's like, you know, Russian intelligence, just tell the world about 9-11, what happened. Yeah, they tell the world, the world to be told, this is a load of rubbish, it's Russian propaganda, and then it all disappears, and any momentum's gone within, within a day or a week at the most. But while you have the intelligence and you have that, you can leverage it to great effect. to to nullify and negate a lot of the cabal's capability to achieve a lot of their goals globally. So for that, you know, it's better not to play your hand with in terms of intelligence. There'll come a day when all these things will become obvious to people. It'll become you know, public knowledge. But for now, there's no point doing it. There's far, it has, there are far bigger games that need to be played and to use this intelligence as leverage until the day comes when there's no need to use it anymore. And therefore at that point, therefore it's released to the public becomes, you know, not an issue. But at the moment, it's far better. Russia doesn't do that. And as the saying goes, how much how much intelligence do do did you know was uh, Trump uh, in possession of as a result of meeting Putin? Because the one thing they were all foaming at the mouth at the neocons, the Beltway. 
We can't have Trump and Putin having a one-to-one meeting. We can't allow this to happen. Well, we know exactly why, because they full well know that that um, obviously Russia has all the intelligence, and they do. They have. They've. You know, we talk about the Chinese having great intelligence, and they do as well. But the Russians are light years ahead of everyone in terms of intelligence gathering, and this goes back over decades. So they have huge amounts of highly valuable information that would for someone like Trump be hugely beneficial. So that's why they're all foaming at the mouth about him meeting him on a one-to-one basis and demanding transcripts of, of what the interpreters had um, when, you know, being privy to what was being discussed because obviously notionally, at least Putin's English isn't that great. Although I think it's better than perhaps people realize, but you know, probably for the, to, in terms of their one-to-one meeting, they would have had interpreters there. But yeah, um, sadly, this is this is old news. It's not surprising. It's hugely regrettable. And at some point, it will come to an end. But until it does, there's going to be, you know, there's no sort of solution to this. And it comes back to the point where we show, that, you know, there's there's plans to have a, an Afghan meeting in um, in Moscow in early September. And there's going to be huge lots of principal players there. And who's the one nation who refused to turn up and cooperate? The US. Hmm. I mean, so, so <laughs> this is just another, ende- you know, it's part of an endemic problem that exists that the US neocon influence has no interest in ending war. It just, you know, it wants more and more wars. It doesn't want less wars. So it will do anything not to cooperate. But in the process, the rest of the world's going, well, hang on, everyone else wants to bring an end to the war in Afghanistan, but you're not interested. Well, you're just highlighting to us, you know, your, your standpoint. And, and, of course, the biggest problem you've got is Bolton. I mean, you only have to listen to Bolton's rhetoric and, and on a near daily basis. I mean, he's telegraphing uh, the, the likelihood of, of various events happening in the future. I mean, the, the classic one was to say, to the Syrians, well, you know, don't you don't use chemical weapons in in Idlib. I mean, my immediate reaction is, uh, well, where's of the white helmets moved there? Because, and that's the other thing, there was a huge problem, and Trump made a howling error of judgment. Was when the whole point was, well, we're not going to finance. There was a big thing. We're not financing the white helmets anymore, and then suddenly, to the tune of six point six million. Uh, they're given additional funding. Then they got pulled out of southern Syria because they looked like they were going to get routed when when the Assad forces and the Iranians and the Russians took control. They were all given free passage to leave via Israel and who knows, Jordan and who knows where else in the process. And now, by all accounts, they've sort of turned up again in, in northern Syria. And we know historically, wherever they turn up, there's this incredible coincidence of chemical weapons attacks happening. I mean, they clearly have a nose for them. It's it's amazing. So. <laughs> Don't they? They can predict the future. They have a magical bulbs, you know, there in front of them. Well, it's it's interesting the timing with this article coming out too, because uh, there was a lot of speculation, Paul, that Trump was planning his his uh, military parade to, uh, you know, honor the military, and that was also going to signify a drawdown of uh, troops around the globe. Uh, but that's been called off stating that it was, it was too much money or something. But then this escalation occurs uh, in Afghanistan and there's been recent flare ups. You also have 
you know, the likes of, of uh, Eric Prince trying to get involved and saying, well, maybe we need to privatize the, the war there. I mean, you know, could this opium drug trade be the, the lifeline of still financing uh, some of the likes of, of the, uh, the deep state operatives? Oh, it's most certainly. But I mean, I can't I can't say how big the narco um, trade is uh, annually, but we're talking trillions. <laughs> I mean, it's just I mean, not just saying solely from Afghanistan, by the way, but it is absolutely enormous. So, yeah, it's used to, to finance a lot of uh, operate cabal operations for sure. And and, you know, you raise the point that they cancel military parades uh, site and they haven't got any money, but. They signed off a $716 billion defense bill. Bingo. <laughs> so the, there's always money available when certain vested interests want to, um, to you know, spend money. But, I mean, to, to, to cite not having money to stage a military parade is a farce. And I think it's indicative of a, of a far bigger problem that exists with within the U.S. and, and in terms of the military. And... And I think, you know, you make the point about wanting them to privatize the the war in Afghanistan. Well, good luck trying to do that. Well, the bottom line is no one's ever going to beat the Taliban. The Taliban will never lose the war. So, but I think the question is, no one cares about that in, in the West. I mean, if war's profitable and the longer war goes on, the more profitable it is for the people providing arms and ammunition and you know, providing uh, contractors and providing you know, the intelligence. I mean, it, it all costs money and someone's got to pay for it. And in the process, some people are getting very fat and rich on the back of it. And that's what it's all about. There's no desire for, for to end the wars in these nations because the truth is, after 17 years, you'd stand there and go, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it's about time we... we <laughs> Took a different perspective on how we deal with it. But Russia's proved that in a space of three years, what they've done in Syria, I mean, and Syria was a massive problem that everyone said, oh, you'll never resolve it. The only resolution is Assad's, Assad's going to end up being um, removed from, from his presidency and it'll be the end of the Assad regime, as they refer to it. And we're going to put a Western uh, puppet government in, and then we'll do all the things we want to do that Assad refused to do. And of course, the fact that Russia went in and in three years, essentially, not entirely then, but largely most of the credits down to that, they've resolved a problem that ordinarily would never have been resolved or have taken decades to resolve. But that is an exceptional situation. Now, you could argue that, you know, the Russians could go into Afghanistan and do the same thing. Well, they've, I think they've learned, well, well actually, we're not going to try and do it in Afghanistan again. But what they're trying to do is get the various parties around the negotiating table and saying to the Afghan government, well, you're going to have to negotiate with the Taliban because they control huge swathes of, of Afghanistan already. You're going to have to legitimize them and allow them to join in the government and the governance of the country. And then actually you're going to have to realize that you're both going to have to deal with a more fundamental problem, which is all the Daesh operatives or ISIS, ISIL or whatever you want to call it, piling into Afghanistan because they're being disenfranchised in Syria and they're looking for somewhere else to go. But Afghanistan is a big problem, not just because of Afghanistan. Just look at it geographically, it's its uh, location in, with respect to nations like 
Pakistan and, and China, etc. So there is a huge risk that Afghanistan needs to be nipped in the bud and finally things are going to have to be resolved. Otherwise, the spread of terrorism uh, across uh, Central Asia into China, etc., is a huge risk of that. And it's something why I said a long time ago, global terrorism is a massive problem in a post-cabal world. I'm not talking about taking control of nations like Syria and having that kind of firepower to do that. I'm talking more of these random sort of indiscriminate wildcat attacks that happen. The risk is they will continue. So it's and, and unless there, you know, there is a global response, which is what exactly what Russia and China and other nations are saying. We need a global task force to deal with these problems. And I and that's why I've said I think you know there is an underlying problem in in Europe with all the immigration. And I'm not saying every immigrant is a terrorist because that's absolute nonsense. But there are people who are known terrorist operatives who've you know entered into Europe. They've formed sleeper cells that exist all around Europe, and at some point they can be you know activated and they could cause huge damage and mayhem and loss of life across Europe. I mean that's that's a reality. But at some point, the Russians are going to have to go in and resolve this problem and, and deal with it. And Europe's going to need them to do that. And that's part of this sort of integration of, of Europe into Russia and the Russian military integrating in, into to Europe and having really a, a huge and dominant position in terms of future military operations and how the military conducts itself in Europe. There's going to be an absolute necessity to deal with that. So because this terrorist threat is never going to just go away because the cabals disappear. There's an argument, how is it going to be funded and financed? And there is a question of that. But there are the threat of sleeper cells that can just suddenly activate, cause carnage in, in a major city somewhere in the world and then disappear again is unacceptable to humanity and it has to be dealt with. And unfortunately, the West, you know, they're the cause of why we've had all this extremism. And it, and the other thing is because of events in Syria where they were told, you know, you're going to win, you know, it's a war you're going to win, we're going to control and form a caliphate in, across the whole Middle East and Syria is part of that. And, of course, now that's not happening. They feel disenfranchised by Western nations. They feel let down. So they're going to go and wreak havoc in Western nations uh, because of the fact they feel that they've been, you know, either let down, badly treated, or they've been betrayed in some way. So there are huge problems and, and consequences for the West. You know, it's the old cliche of saying, what you sow, you shall reap. And unfortunately, Western nations risk reaping that. Uh, and particularly Europe is a, is, a, is a classic example of how that infiltration's happened because of the huge migration that's happened into Europe precisely as a result of the Arab Spring, Syria, Afghanistan, and the list goes, Iraq, and the list goes on and on and on. Absolutely. Paul, please plug, plug your website, how listeners can learn more about your subscription-based system, and uh, we'll, we'll close this show out. But And again, also, Paul, a big thank you uh, for the past two weeks and, and you know helping out. I really sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure, and you don't need to thank me, honestly. It's it's not you know you made it very easy you come up you come up with a list of topics i have a quick flick through it think about it and then we come on and discuss it so it's a real pleasure and you know i'm glad i can you know help you a bit and uh 
and it's good that V can go away and have a bit of a holiday and, you know, there's other people around to, to help while he's away. But So, no, it's a pleasure, and you don't need to thank me. The pleasure's mine. So. Well, we appreciate it. Yeah, in terms of in terms of the website, obviously it's the seriousreport.com, S-I-R-I-U-S. And yeah, we have a lot of free material. We do these shows. Obviously, we're doing we do some other shows. We might be gonna do a show with someone else in the next couple of weeks. I need to get back in touch with them about that. Um, but yes, we have the the podcast subscription service. We do five equivalent a week. It's about a hundred minutes roughly. And it's very detailed, very packed information. It's very concise. As someone says, there's not a word wasted. And we literally do not waste a word. We try to get as much information in and, and keep it very detailed. It's stuff we don't cover off anywhere else. Or as we said, there's things we're discussing now. I discussed on that many months ago or several months ago. So we're always trying to be ahead of the game in terms of providing people with the information as to what's going on. And, you know, obviously it's $4.75 a month, which is considerably cheaper than our peers. Not that I'm saying anyone shouldn't listen to our peers because people should listen to as many different sources as they can, to, you know. But, but we think it's a, a very cheap and we do it for that reason because we appreciate people don't have a huge amount of money in the process. And, but, you know, it's, it's a full-time job for us. That's all. That's what we do. We don't do anything else. And... And that's why we spend the time and try to be diligent about things. And uh, for every five minutes of podcast material we choose, there's probably a hundred minutes that are discarded on the, you know, and thrown out the window because it doesn't stand up to scrutiny or I've had to go away and cross-reference things and find that it's debatable what's being discussed. So we just try to keep things absolutely factual because stone cold facts at the end of the day, supported by, our analysis supported by other information that, that you know, ties all the, the various uh, um, dots together is, is what we try to do and we endeavor to do. And, uh, and, you know, thank you again for Rogue News because, you know, you gave us a huge uh, foot up in that regard and got us a bigger audience. And, and we, you know, we're very, very grateful for that. And that's why it's always nice when someone helps you, that, you know, in times like the last couple of weeks, we can help you. Likewise, because that the name of the game for all humanity that we all look after and help each other as much as we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much. And then also, uh, so uh, thank you, Serious Report. You know, also want to uh, thank our, our sponsors just real quick. My CBD Edibles uh, also remain calm. I'm going to get with the crypto guys. I We were going to try to do a show, I believe, on Wednesday. So I'm going to get with them, see if we hopefully can't put something together this afternoon. And then also liquid-based uh, IO. So go to roguenews.com, subscribe, make sure you check out our YouTube channel, our Twitter handle. Uh, we're going to be uh, changing things up here in a little bit. When V gets back, we're going to organize, uh, you know, kind of follow through on some of our discussions in regards to uh, the censorship occurring on YouTube and everything else. So, so stay tuned, subscribe. That way you can you can get the, the information as it's released. Everyone have a great weekend. Stay safe. I will be back at 12 p.m. with Harley Schlinger. He had some technical issues yesterday that prevented him from doing a show, so we're, we're doing it today at 12. Lennon Paul, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Yeah, pleasure. And likewise, you have a good weekend and all the listeners too. All right. Thank you. We're, this is CJ and Lennon Paul. We're signing out. Take care, everyone.